Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me if you've got one with you or in front of you to the gospel according to John. We continue in our journey through this book today. As a church, we're going through John every fall and winter. We paused our journey through John for Advent and Christmas and Sunday after Epiphany. And today we turn to John chapter four. You hopefully remember that Towards the end of this book, the next to last chapter of this book, the author, John, tells us why exactly he wrote this book, and this is also why, as a church, we're immersing ourselves in this book. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, the purpose of this book is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's not just any other man. He's not just any other teacher. He's not just a religious guy or a philosopher or a revolutionary. He's not any other man. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's the ultimate purpose of this book. That's the reason why we're immersing ourselves in this book. And that's the ultimate invitation of Jesus himself to life. I wish that as we opened our Bibles to John chapter 4, that they were pop-up Bibles, (laughs) like we read for kids sometimes, those pop-up books, where they come to life. If we could see the Bible that way, see the Gospel of John that way, this is a living invitation. God's Word is living and active, the book of Hebrews tells us. So as we read the Gospel of John, it's a living invitation to us to life in Christ, God gave us his spoken living word. And the Gospel of John also teaches us that Jesus is the living incarnate word. So Jesus himself is that invitation. And through all the pages of the Gospel of John, through all the stories, all the encounters that Jesus has, all the healings and the miracles and the conversations and the the turmoil he stirs around him, Jesus himself is inviting us to life. We heard this in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh, and you know this, dwelt among us, dwelt among us. And this book reminds us of this time and time again. Jesus dwelt among us in real places, in real situations, in real towns, in real villages, with real people, and real sinners. He really did. His spoken living word reveals to us the incarnate word. What's so amazing about grace, one of the things that's so amazing about grace is that the one who is life doesn't just stand passively by and wait for us to make that happen on our own, to make life happen on our own. What's so amazing about grace is the one who is life becomes flesh and pursues us and chases after us and brings us to life, and it's all grace. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. It's all grace. And as we turn to John chapter 4 this morning, as Jesus pops up out of these pages, we see this kind of grace on display, the pursuing 
chasing, drawing, wooing grace of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we turn to this chapter, Jesus himself meets and befriends and woos a person who would least expect it. The incarnate word of God extends here, we'll see, the incarnate grace of God. He puts flesh on grace. Grace isn't just an idea. Grace is a person, and he woos someone who would least expect it. What we see in this encounter is that a person who is certain they don't deserve grace is a prime candidate for grace. So because of that, I invite us all to take our time in these verses, not to rush through them. And over the next weeks, as we walk through John 4, we'll see treasure after treasure of grace. Treasures of grace in this chapter. And what I want us all to see is that these treasures of grace that are true in John 4 are also true for you. The Jesus who speaks grace in John chapter 4 speaks grace to you. So maybe you're just getting to know Jesus. Maybe this Jesus character is still kind of new to you. Maybe you're getting reacquainted with Jesus. Maybe you've known Jesus for a long time. Whatever the case may be, Jesus introduces or reintroduces himself to us in John chapter 4. So as we get into this chapter today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. We really are invited to marvel at God's grace on display in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see here as we start in verse 1 is where his grace goes. This is where his grace goes. Now, when Jesus learned, verse 1, that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So in these three verses, we see a few interesting things. We see that Jesus' fame was beginning to spread, and he's aware of this. Jesus' disciples are doing the baptizing for him. Jesus likely instructed them to do this so that people wouldn't treat his baptism as if it was any more valid than his disciples' baptism. There's another thread that John weaves throughout the book is that Jesus links himself with his disciples very closely, so he's not about to let people start thinking that, well, if I get baptized by Jesus, it's more valid than if I get baptized by Peter. And so then instead of basking in this glory, the fame that's starting to spread about Jesus in this region, he leaves the region, leaves Judea, heads to Galilee. That's verses one through three. And then we read this in verse four, that he had to pass through Samaria. It's interesting. He had to pass through Samaria. And it's interesting because actually, technically, 
He didn't have to. He didn't have to. He could have, and if he was following the rules, he should have avoided Samaria. And what Jesus could have done, should have done, was take the long route around Samaria, which is what most Jews did, but Jesus wasn't going to play those games. There were centuries of hostility, centuries of tension. We don't have time for it this morning, but it goes back to events that are chronicled in 2 Kings between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were viewed by Jews basically as half-breeds. So in this verse, verse 4, when John writes that Jesus had to go to Samaria, that's because Jesus decided he had to. It's it's what's called a divine necessity. It's necessary because Jesus decides it's necessary. It's not technically necessary, but Jesus says it is, and so it is. Jesus decided it was necessary to go through Samaria. Grace is on display here. This isn't just a travel update. It's not just telling us Jesus went from point A to point B. It's telling us that Jesus is going right for the heart. Jesus is going right for a place and a person where there's some serious sin and shame. He's gonna go right for the heart of it. It's where his grace goes. And it's true in John chapter four, but we gotta let this pop out of the pages for us this morning. It's true for us today. Jesus deliberately comes into places of sin and shame. So John isn't just giving us a little itinerary of Jesus. He's actually showing us something much deeper than that. Because what we see here is that the direction that Jesus travels shows the inclination of Jesus' heart. Where he chose to place his feet shows us where Jesus chose to set his heart. Jesus doesn't avoid sin and shame or hard things or broken people or lost people. Jesus doesn't avoid it. He actually sits down right in the middle of it, makes himself comfortable. Look with me at verses five and six. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and he chooses to dwell among us even in, you need to hear this this morning, even in the most difficult, avoided, painful, awkward, hostile places. Jesus doesn't stay where it's comfortable. He goes straight for the capital city of uncomfortable, if there was such a thing. He goes right for the capital city, and he sits down there besides a well. He had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Here's why he had to. He had to because he knew there's a woman there who's gonna come to a well And that woman needs to come alive in him. 
but that woman is such a mess, that woman's life is such a train wreck, that that woman is never in a million years going to come to where Jesus is. So here's grace on display in the pages of John 4. Instead of Jesus waiting for the woman to come to where he is, Jesus decides to go to where she is. Remember how Jesus put it himself in Luke's gospel, Luke 5.31. He says, healthy people don't need a physician. Sick people do. It's so obvious to us, and yet it's so profound. This is where his grace goes. Physician Jesus goes for sick people, not healthy people. Healer Jesus goes for broken people, not put together people. So I hope you know, I hope you really know, Jesus is still like this. Jesus' heart is still inclined like this. His heart is inclined towards grace, towards brokenness, towards shame. You can't hide your sin from him. You can't hide your shame from him, your brokenness, your pain, whatever area in your life that you would probably rather most people avoid, and that area in your life that you might even prefer Jesus just avoid. And at some level, even if you might not articulate it this way, some of us have come to believe in this caricature of Jesus in which he's so disappointed at us or in something about us or something we've done or something we've not done. Or maybe Jesus is just so tired of us. Or maybe there's an area that Jesus is kind of grossed out by in us. And so what Jesus does is he places us on some kind of timeout for 15, 20 years, and he actually physically distances himself from us until we're sorry enough, until we've stewed in our own consequences enough, at which point we finally come groveling to him. If that's the caricature of Jesus that we have in our minds, we need to let Jesus reintroduce himself to us. We need to read John 4. Jesus will not take the beltway around your Samaria. Let me say that again. Jesus will not take the beltway around your Samaria. He will come right downtown and he will have a seat. I don't know if you've experienced like I have the joy of taking the express lanes <laughs> on 66 or on the Beltway or on 95. It costs you $87 to go four miles, but <laughs> there is no joy like speeding along at 80 miles an hour and laughing at all those regular people. Stuck in traffic. 
It feels good to avoid things sometimes, even to pay top dollar to avoid things sometimes. We all become very good, very experienced, and we enjoy avoiding things. Not just DC traffic, we also become, all of us, quite adept at avoiding conflict, brokenness, sin, our issues, dysfunction, shame, you name it. Jesus doesn't take the toll road to avoid you. Jesus gets into your traffic. Jesus gets into the car with you and he says, I've got all day. I'm here for as long as it takes. Maybe Jesus wants to come to you today because you're still totally dead in your sins. You've never put your trust in him. And maybe you're running from Jesus, but Jesus is a faster runner than you. And he's gonna pursue you and chase after you and woo you to bring you to life. He's not gonna wait for you to make it happen on your own. But maybe you're not totally dead in your sins. Maybe you've been a Christian for 49 years, but there might still be some things that are dead in you. There might be some places that you have walled off And Jesus wants to come into those areas. He wants to come into those towns, and he wants to have a seat. Jesus isn't interested in playing those games. Not with you and not with his church, by the way. (laughs) Wherever, we can count on this, we can take it to the bank. Wherever Jesus sees Sin, shame, brokenness, dysfunction, abuse, skeletons in closets, that's where Jesus is gonna go. That's where Jesus is gonna go. You can bet on it. So there's symbolism here uh, all throughout John 4, just like the whole book of John, and none of it is accidental. Jesus is very purposeful about every detail, and John is very purposeful about every detail he records So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he also knows, and I think he's quite enjoying, exactly where he's doing it. So remember that Jesus, at the end of chapter 1, had claimed to be and declared himself to be the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. Well, now he happens to sit down in all the fields he could have chosen, verse 5, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And in a region where there were plenty of natural springs, Jesus, the fulfillment of Jacob, not only chooses to sit down at a well, but at Jacob's well. He's getting a kick out of this. So here's the true and greater Jacob's ladder sitting down near Jacob's field, right by Jacob's well. And then what does every well need? What do you come to a well for? Water. Reminds me of that joke about the, did you hear about the boy that fell down the well? He didn't see that well. So here's Jesus. Right by, yeah. Some of you will get it later. What? So here's Jesus sitting by a well, the true and greater and perfect source of living water. All of the symbolism, every last detail of it, Jesus is using to say, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the fulfillment. Just marvel with me here at the the treasures of grace in Christ. 
even here early in this narrative, Jesus takes the direct route. He goes right into the center of sin and shame and the source of water sits down where he knows we're going to come looking for a drink. That's where his grace goes. Now, as we move on, we see not only where his grace goes, but also who his grace is for. In the previous chapter, Nicodemus, a respectable man, had come to Jesus under cover of night, and now Jesus meets a broken woman in the light of day. Verses seven through nine. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let me make a brief parenthetical note about these two parenthetical notes in verses eight and nine. So in verse nine's parentheses, you see it, we're told Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But one verse before that, verse eight, which is all a parentheses, we're told that Jesus' disciples had gone into the city to do just that, to have dealings with Samaritans. So notice in these two parentheses that the grace that Jesus embodied, his disciples also embodied. Jesus didn't avoid Samaritans, so neither did his disciples. So here's the word of, brief word of application for the church, for Jesus' disciples. Pay attention to what games Jesus doesn't play. And those are the same games that we should not play. Are we playing games that Jesus wouldn't play? Avoiding people, avoiding issues, avoiding sin, avoiding brokenness, taking the beltway around things. We are to extend and embody the same grace that Jesus himself extends and embodies. That's the parenthetical note. So now this conversation, it's about to happen and we'll go more into it in future weeks. This conversation that's about to happen is the reason why Jesus came to town, came to this field, came to this well at this hour. There is no way that any of this is coincidental. On the one hand, we've been reminded that Jesus is fully man. John reminded us of that just in the detail that Jesus was really thirsty, really weary, really needed to drink some water. So he's fully man, but he's also fully God. And so he's orchestrated this whole thing to show his grace. And the, the most appropriate adjective I can think of to describe the sort of grace that Jesus shows here is scandalous. It's scandalous grace. Because his grace is for a person who is clearly mired in sin. His grace is for a person who, judging by the time of day, is clearly avoiding being around people. Jesus' grace is for a person who his own culture had deemed as a half-breed. So the incarnate word of God, here sitting beside the well, is also the incarnate grace of God. 
And he not only talks to a woman, but he only also talks to a notoriously sinful woman, and not only talks to a notoriously sinful woman, but a notoriously sinful Samaritan woman. See the layers of scandal here of Jesus's grace. And then he has the audacity not just to talk to her, make small talk, but Jesus has the audacity to ask the sinful Samaritan woman for a drink. He's going to share the same cup as her. He's going to put his lips on the same cup from which she drinks. Scandalous grace. But what's also so beautiful about this, though, in the details, if you look at the details, zoom in, look at it, Jesus is not only the salvation for sinners, he's also the friend of sinners. You see his friendship here towards the woman, his utter friendship he's extending to her. He's come to save this woman, yes, save her from her sin and her shame, but he's also come to be her friend. There isn't an ounce of condemnation in Jesus. There isn't an ounce of condemnation here. He's gonna woo her. He's gonna expose some things. Yes, it's gonna be some, some painful surgery that's going on in this woman's soul the next verse or two. And yet, he shows her friendship. Jesus knows if this woman is going to be saved, she's going to have to come to Jesus just as he is. In order to make that happen, Jesus comes to her just the way she is. That old hymn, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. It's the bidding, it's the invitation of him that precipitates my coming to him. Just as I am, thou wilt receive. Just as I am, thou wilt receive. Boy, there's enough theology in that one phrase to last a lifetime. Just as I am, thou wilt receive will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. So because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Who wants to go to a Jesus who's gonna condemn them for their sins and rub their face in it? No one's gonna wanna go to a Jesus like that. Jesus is gonna heal you. He's gonna redeem you. He's gonna sanctify you. He's gonna deliver you. He's gonna raise you to life again. And it might hurt, yes, but my goodness, is it worth it? Jesus comes to you just the way you are before you ever come to him, before you ever repent, before you ever feel sorry, before you ever feel anything at all. Jesus comes to you just like he did with the woman of Samaria, just the way you are. And the sign here, we'll close with this, the sign that we're beginning to get grace, the sign that we're beginning to wake up to grace is not and is never that we think we deserve it, but that we know we don't deserve it. And if that's all you know, if that's all you ever know, that's enough. 
because you can know a lot about God and about theology and doctrine and church history and apologetics and ecclesiology and eschatology and Anglicanism. But if you don't know this one thing, then you don't really know anything. It's that you don't deserve God's grace. He lavishes it upon you in Christ as a gift of love. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It's not your own righteousness that warrants it. God loves you because he loves you. He pours his grace upon you because he wants to pour his grace on you. You don't deserve it. And the first words out of the Samaritan woman's mouth to Jesus are words of just that. They're words of wonder. Look with me at verse 8. These words of wonder. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? How is it? How can this be? How can I, a sinner, find myself face to face with grace? How is it? That's the response to grace. Words of wonder. And that's the sign we're beginning to get it when we know we don't deserve it. Where does his grace go in this story? To a place of brokenness, sin, and shame. Where does his grace still go today? To places of brokenness, sin, and shame. Who is his grace for in this story? For a broken sinner who doesn't deserve it. Who is his grace still for today? For broken sinners who don't deserve it. Praise God that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He's the incarnate word. And he is the incarnate, scandalous grace of God for a whole bunch of Samaritan women and Samaritan men like you and me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we can't even begin to thank you. That song we sang earlier, there isn't time enough to sing of all you've done. But we have eternity to try. And one day we will. We'll see you, Jesus. And we will thank you face to face. But for now, thank you, Father, for the great gift of Jesus, your son, his incarnate grace for us. Help us to even begin to believe it. And help us to begin to receive it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,